Please turn to me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Acts 8, 1 through 8. Remember, the book of Acts focuses on the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, through His people. So far in Acts, we've seen the start and rise of the church in this very unique time in redemptive history. God's Spirit has now come and indwelt His people. The apostles were performing mighty miracles in order to authenticate their ministry as the foundation of the church was being laid down and as the Word of God was being completed. The church was united. They were focused. They were intent on glorifying Christ alone. And they were growing. But they were also being persecuted. And while the apostles have been thrown into prison and beaten because of their faith... Things, as we saw last time, things took a turn with Stephen, remember? Stephen was falsely accused. He was arrested. He was put on trial for blaspheming both Moses and God. And so in chapter 7, he gave his defense before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. And he ended his sermon with some serious indictments against his hard-hearted, sinful accusers. And they didn't take it well. No, they killed him for it. They killed him for it. Viciously, brutally savagely, uh, cruelly. And so as we saw last week, Stephen, the man of God, he died, but he died peacefully, right? Praying for the souls of his murderers. Let's find out what happens next. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And we'll stop here for now. And here in today's passage, we see six notable events that occurred after the martyrdom of Stephen. And first, the first event is this, that Saul consented to Stephen's death. We looked at that a little bit last week, but we see it again now. Saul consented to Stephen's death. Who is Saul? The guess is that Saul was born around 10 AD in Tarsus, which is on the southeastern coast of Turkey. Saul's father was a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. Nothing is known about his mother. While young, Saul learned the trade of tent making. However, around the age of 13, he was sent to Jerusalem for religious training. He trained under the highly renowned teacher Gamaliel, a Pharisee, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, again, the ruling council in Jerusalem of the day. Saul became a great student there, very devout, very legalistic, very strict, very loyal to his cause. Now the problem was that the Pharisees opposed Christ and they were more loyal to their traditions than they were to the truth. See, they were all about religion, right? External duty and looking good to people instead of to the Lord. And Saul thrived in that system. Now, as I've said before, I believe that we have every indication that Stephen and Saul knew each other. See, the church has begun here in Acts, and Christianity was spreading, and converts were being won to the Lord. And There were Jewish converts who came out of synagogues around Jerusalem. And as this was a transitional time, some of the Christians still attended their local synagogues, at least in part as the church was getting organized and figuring out how to minister to the tens of thousands of souls now in the church. 
So it was a very transitionary time. And I think that Stephen was a convert who came out of the synagogue of the freedmen, Acts 6-8. And now he's doing his best to convert them in that synagogue, his synagogue, to faith in Christ. Remember, Stephen was a Hellenist, a Greek-speaking Jew. The synagogue of the freedmen was Hellenistic, and hearts who love souls want their loved ones and they want their friends to come to saving faith in Christ. Therefore, Stephen went back to his synagogue to tell them of the good news of Jesus Christ. But note this, the synagogue of the freedmen was made up of Jews who came from Cilicia. The principal city of Cilicia was Tarsus, and Saul was from Tarsus. And look, Saul was studying under Gamaliel in Jerusalem at this very time, and it's probable that Saul and Stephen, again, were members of the same synagogue. And now Stephen has become a Christian, and he was disputing with these from, I believe, his own synagogue about Jesus. And the main one that he was most likely disputing with was Saul of Tarsus. And Stephen was winning every dispute, and I'm sure that Saul didn't like that one bit. Not only was Saul consenting to Stephen's death, someone I believe he probably knew very well, but I believe he was the ringleader of this whole thing going on right now. See, to Saul and the rest of the Pharisees who were steeped in their works-based false system at that time, Christianity was a great threat to them. And while they jailed and flogged some of the apostles, the church kept on growing. And so now it was time to begin persecuting the church. Widespread persecution of the church, beginning with Stephen, and that's what they did. And Saul led it. He led it. So second, we find that persecution broke out and the church scattered. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church. It was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Note the word great. Mega in the Greek, which expresses the magnitude of the persecution. This is indeed the first persecution of the Christians as a whole, and the persecution grew in stages. We've seen that. First, it was against Peter and John. Then it was against the twelve apostles. Then it hit full force with the murder of Stephen. And now, it's an all-out attack on the entire church. Mega persecution, intense persecution, extreme persecution, severe persecution. See, being persecuted for your faith isn't fun. Understatement? Persecution hurts. <laughs> a persecution means pain. And the early church was under intense persecution because of their faith. And this it really is the biblical pattern for true believers throughout the ages. Persecution. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And true Christians are those who desire to be godly. And so persecution in some form is a promise for us in Christ. It may not be jail. It may not be death. Not yet. But persecution in some form is a promise for those who love the Lord. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is about to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In other words, as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering, no. But instead, you should expect suffering as a Christian because it's a promise from God. A persecution like what? Well, mockery, um, lies about you. A loss of a job because you won't compromise your faith in Christ. A, a loss of some friends because you won't compromise your faith in Christ. Something else, you know, prison, death, maybe it's something else. 
When I was in Myanmar, one of the pastors asked me a question about the very popular health, wealth, gospel that's so prevalent in their culture. He said, Pastor, these famous preachers come in and tell people that if they're true Christians, then they will always be healthy. And if they're true Christians, then they will always be rich. And if they're true Christians, then nothing really bad will ever happen to them. And, you know, that lie really appeals to the people in that very poor society. My response, the opposite is true. The opposite's true. When you become a Christian, expect life to be harder. When you become a Christian, expect greater pain and expect greater suffering. Expect more trials in your life because of your faith. But Jesus is worth it all and glory awaits you. And the Christian life is a joy even in the midst of the pain. That's what the Bible says. And so the great persecution came upon uh, the first Christians in Jerusalem. And look, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Note that that word all doesn't mean all without exception. Because Luke the writer qualifies the statement by saying all except for the apostles. On top of that, we know that there was still an active church in Jerusalem after this persecution and scattering. So why say they were all scattered? Some believe that the all here refers primarily to the Hellenistic Christians, to those Greek-speaking Jews who had become saved. And because Stephen was a Hellenist, the persecution therefore was aimed primarily at them, and so they all scattered, while some of the others who weren't Hellenists remained along with the apostles. But regardless, the persecution caused many of these Christians in Jerusalem to leave the city and go to other, more safer places. And it's very interesting, because... Up until now, in the book of Acts, all the ministry has taken place in Jerusalem. Right there in Jerusalem. No one has moved out to Judea, or, you know, the out, outward, and no one's moved out to Samaria, even though Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and look, all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. But that hasn't happened yet until now. And look, it's persecution that brought this about. It's persecution that caused the Christians to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And so God used persecution to move His people into the mission that He had given them eight chapters before. What's the lesson? Well, persecution and suffering isn't always bad. That's one lesson, and, and God is sovereign over all these things, and your call is to be faithful wherever God has you. Look, ease is often the Christian's enemy. Prosperity and comfort often leads to spiritual laziness. A number of years ago, the Star Tribune had an article that showed that the richer we are, the less we give to the church and its mission in proportion to our income. The poorest fifth of the church give 3.4% of their income to the church. And the richest fifth give 1.6, half as much as the poor church members. How sad is that? How sad is that? Interesting principle there. The principle that hard times like persecution often produces more prayer, more power, more generosity, and more trust in the living God than in the easy times. I certainly know that that's the case with me. When do I pray the most and when do I pray the hardest? When things are hard. I'm not saying we should seek persecution. I'm simply saying that we should be very wary of excessive ease and 
comfort and affluence. And we shouldn't be disheartened, but filled with hope if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, because God knows exactly what he's doing, even in times of persecution. And as John Piper said, God makes persecution serve the mission of the church. That was certainly true here in Acts chapter 8. I mean, God's sovereign purposes were being fulfilled in this persecution. I mean, isn't that clear? Now, it's doubtful that those present in Jerusalem were able to say, I can see the purpose of God in all of this. Uh, The gospel is now going to spread to the nations of the earth. I, I doubt they saw it in that moment because no doubt they were bowed down by the weight, the intense weight of their suffering. I mean, some would even lose their lives as Stephen did. But even though they may not see it then, again, God knows exactly what he's doing and his ways are much bigger than our ways, and we're called to trust him. It's the same principle found in Genesis chapter 50, the story of Joseph. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis fifty twenty. As Derek Thomas observed, in times of relative peace, the church grows fat and lazy, spending too much time worrying about its relationship to Hollywood and culture, when all along, people are dying without ever having an adequate presentation of the gospel. They are fiddling while Rome burns. He's right. But persecution strengthens the church. Persecution wakes us up. Persecution separates the wheat from the chaff. Persecution is often the best means that God uses to reach the lost. And persecution is often a good thing for the people of God because it refines us and draws us ever closer to our amazing God. Tertullian, speaking of Christian persecution, wrote these words in the second century. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And look, this persecution would be the worst thing that happened to Satan's cause because it would be the means of the good news spreading throughout the world. I love that. I love how God does that. Note this. Note that the word for scattered literally means, as one said, to sow hither and yon. Don't you wish you'd talk like that? Let's start talking like that. To sow hither and yon. To sow throughout. To scatter seed abroad. Like a farmer tosses his seed from his bag onto the soil that's been prepared for that seed. And it's a great picture that the Christians who were scattered because of the great persecution were like seed that God scattered in order to plant them in other places where they can take root, grow, and bear great fruit for the glory of God. It's a great picture. So, the blood of Christians is seed but also the lives of Christians is seed that can bear great fruit for the glory of God. More on that in a second. Note also (coughs) that the apostles remain behind in Jerusalem to face the persecution. Why is that? Are they cowards? Here's why. Because while God had moved many of these Christians to be scattered, namely the Hellenists, He wanted the apostles to stay behind with the others who were still there. See, The apostles saw it as their duty to remain and not to abandon their post. And I think it's clear that it wasn't wrong for the Christians to leave Jerusalem, but I also think it wasn't wrong for the apostles to stay in Jerusalem so long as you glorify God where He had you, which they obviously did. 
And so the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And I think it shows their leadership. They're not cowards. They're not cowards. I think it shows their courage and willingness to be brave, whatever dangers might come their way, even death. Like a captain going down with the ship, the apostles were going to stay in Jerusalem in this very crucial time in church history. As one noted, like faithful watchmen, they remained at their post. They were still, there were still believers in Jerusalem that needed to be continually nurtured. There were those who couldn't flee and they needed to be ministered to. And there were those that still needed to be reached for the case, the, the, the cause of Christ. And I think that's absolutely correct. I love their boldness. I love their conviction here and, and throughout the book of Acts. They are men who put God first. They understand that to live is Christ and to die is gain. They know that Jesus alone is our all in all. They know that Jesus alone satisfies. They know that Jesus is worth living for and dying for. They know that this life isn't all that there is. They know that suffering for Jesus is well worth it. They get it, see. And so they stay where the persecution is the hottest for God's sake. And the others scattered for the sake of God. They stayed for the sake of God and they trusted him with the outcome. Lord, help us to be more like them. Third, look, Stephen was buried. Verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. This is interesting because the word devout really jumps out at us. Why? Because based on the word devout, it's debated whether these men were believers or whether they were non-Christian Jews. And look, most commentators feel that this is describing pious Jews rather than Christians, because if this was referring to Christians, then it would have said believers or brothers, but instead it says devout men. And that's a term that has to do with pious Jews who carefully observe the law of God. And so it seems that there were some Jews in Jerusalem, though not Christians, they're not saved yet, who still believe that the murder of Stephen was clearly wrong. And not only do they believe that the murder of Stephen was wrong, but they did something about it, which could have cost them greatly. Note that the law said that for criminals, you couldn't weep and you couldn't lament over a criminal's death. But look, here you have these devout men making great lamentation over Stephen, which was probably a very public thing in defiance to what had just happened. Stephen's death was wrong, right? It was evil. And these devout Jews know it, and they openly let that fact be known that it was wrong. I love that. See, even though they didn't agree with Stephen, they still knew right from wrong. And what happened to Stephen was clearly wrong. And so they take a stand for what's right. And instead of going along with the crowd, these guys go against the crowd in order to do the right thing. And it says something about them, even though they're not saved yet. Now, why include that in the narrative? I think this is one of the reasons the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. See, there's still some Jews in Jerusalem that aren't hardened and calloused and, and, and blinded. No, but there's still some fertile soil for the apostles to reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think this is one of the reasons that they stayed in the middle of the storm of persecution. Fourth notable event from this passage that Saul made havoc on the church. Look at this. It says, Devout men who were appalled by what had been done to Stephen were burying Stephen. Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Can you imagine? I mean, think, think of that. 
Think of that happening today to us. It must have been an extraordinarily hard time in Jerusalem as homes of believers were ransacked and men and women were dragged away to prison. Havoc is a strong word which speaks of harming, damaging, ruining, destroying, and injuring severely. The word pictures the tearing of a body by an animal. It speaks of brutal and sadistic cruelty and of irrational and relentless persecution. Talking about our brothers and sisters in the past. People like us, see, who who simply loved the Lord and wanted to honor Him, and now they're being persecuted savagely. And so the church now found itself in enemy-occupied territory, and Satan was doing his best to defeat her. Has anything really changed? Has it? No. We're still in a battle. And it's real. And our enemy is real. And we're called to fight well this good fight of the faith. And the battle is still raging. But Saul, man, he's out for blood. Entering into every house. Looking for Christians. And throwing them into prison for their faith. He's a serious force against the church. He's a prime mover in opposing Christ and he had the full authority of the Jewish leaders. According to Acts 26.10, Paul looks back and says how the chief priest had hired him to do this. He says, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, Christians, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them, think of that, I compelled them to blaspheme God. So he's probably torturing these Christians in order to get them to renounce their faith. He doesn't care if you're a man. He doesn't care if you're a woman. He, he, he'll harm any old child of God that he can. And oh, what a tool he was for the wicked one. He was Satan's man. That's Saul. What a time. What a time. Can you imagine being a Christian in that city in those hard days of intense persecution? They stay and probably get dragged off to prison, taken away from your family, perhaps even you're going to die. You go um, in order to save your family from pain and torture, but where are you going to go? You scatter. Trying times indeed for the people of God. Look what happened next, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Is that good or what? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So fifth, we find that the scattered Christians preached the gospel. Isn't that good? Come on. Verse 4 is a great verse. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And, and so it backfired on Satan. Don't you love that? I mean, I love it when it backfires on Satan. The persecution came. Christians scattered. And look, the seed was sown and the word of God was preached everywhere that these scattered Christians went. The word for preach here is interesting because it's best translated as spreading the good news or even gossiping the good news. In other words, it's more of a natural flow than kind of a formalized preaching. And look, the present tense of the word indicates that they were continually preaching, that they were continually talking, gossiping the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Well, what good news is that? Well, the good news that uh, you're a wretched sinner who is undeserving of forgiveness and who is undeserving of heaven, but God can save you from the hellish wages of your sin that condemns you. That good news. Sin is high treason against the holy God, and sin has wages. Hell, eternal separation from God, and we are all sinners steeped in sin. And look, there's nothing we can do about it except pay the wretched wages. On our own. However, God has made a way for undeserving sinners like us to be saved from hell and from wrath and to go to heaven. Talk about incredible love because we certainly don't deserve this in any way. And so Jesus, God the Son, left heaven, came here, took on human flesh, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross. And then three days later, He rose up from the dead, proving that what He did on the cross was indeed a reality. What was that? Well, on the cross, Jesus took the sin of every believer in history onto Himself. He paid the wages, the eternal wages of those sins in the believer's place so that we who believe could go to heaven instead of hell. Sin banishes us from heaven. And so Jesus took our sin that condemns us off of us, put it onto Himself. He became the believer's substitute for sin, and He was punished brutally for all that sin so that we could be justified in God's sight and go to heaven even though we deserve hell. And now, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, because of what He did on that cross, forgiveness of all your sin, heaven, Eternal glory for undeserving sinners like us because of Jesus. And these scattered Christians couldn't help but tell those around them constantly this amazing soul-saving news. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you some good news that can save your soul from hell. Let let me tell you about the one who's forgiven me of all my sin, of all the the wretched things that I've ever done. Let me tell you about the one who can give you purpose and meaning and peace and, and hope and joy unspeakable. Jesus is His name. Let me tell you what He's done. And so they went around constantly telling people around them the good news of Christ. Shouldn't every Christian be doing this? shouldn't this just, how could we not? Shouldn't this just uh, flow up out of us in light of who He is and in light of what He's done? Come on now. We're not stones. How could we not tell people the best news in the history of the world, especially when it can have eternal results? And yet, we have friends and loved ones and neighbors and family members who haven't truly heard the good news from our lips. That's a crime. That's a challenge too. That's a challenge. May God speak to our hearts this morning. Notice this. Notice that it wasn't the apostles who were the focus of this activity, but it was those who were scattered who spread this good news. And it wasn't the professional preachers who did this either. No, it was those men and women, regular men and women, who who carried on their livelihood day by day and who simply spoke of their faith to those whom they met naturally. It wasn't a program. It, It was a lifestyle. And that's the best form of evangelism there is, where you simply go out from here with the love and the joy of God on your heart and on your lips, and you can't help but talk of Him and represent Him well and shine forth His love and truth out of you. Because those who love Jesus find it difficult to keep quiet about Him. How could we? Look at what He's done. Look at 
how much he loves you. Look at how good he is for you to you. Look at him. How could we keep silent about him? Look, we're all evangelists. We're all called to share the good news of Christ to those around us. The, the Great Commission applies to every Christian. We're called to shine brightly for the Lord. We're salt and we're light. We're called uh, to be the spiritual watchman for the many souls that surround us. And God has given us all this privilege of being his ambassadors to this lost, dying world. And woe to us if we don't, again, because those who love Jesus find it difficult to keep quiet about him. And also, their hearts ache for the many lost souls around them. And how are they going to be saved if they haven't heard the good news? Think of this. There are over 7.5 billion people in the world. About 153,000 die in the world every day. Most of these people don't know the Lord. Most of these people are dying in their sin and they're going to hell. Hordes of people in Myanmar are dying in their sin. Masses of people in India don't have the hope that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Tons of people here in Vacaville are hopeless, lost, and wandering about like sheep without a shepherd. And look, God put us here for a reason. And woe to us if we don't tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ. If we don't tell them the lost around us, the good news of Jesus Christ like they did here in Acts 8. Lord, help us. For This is the strategy, me and you, sharing Christ to those around us naturally and purposefully because how could we not? D.L. Moody is an inspiration to me. He once made a promise that he would witness for Christ to at least one person each day. Think of, think of that. Think of that commitment. One night about 10 o'clock, he realized that he hadn't witnessed yet to a lost soul. So he went out onto the street and spoke to a man standing by a lamppost asking him, are you a Christian? The man flew into a violent rage and threatened to knock Moody into the gutter. Later, that same man went to an elder in Moody's church and complained that Moody was doing more harm to Chicago than 10 men were doing good. The elder then begged Moody to temper his religious zeal, which was impossible if you know anything about Moody. Three months later, Moody was awakened at, at the door by a man knocking. It was a man he had witnessed to. I want to talk to you about my soul, he said to Moody. He apologized for the way he had treated Moody and said that he had, had no peace ever since that night when Moody first approached him. Moody then led the man to Christ and the man went on to became, become a popular uh, a zealous worker for the Lord. That's a true story. That's a true story. We never know. We never know how God will use us when we go out and spread His Word to those around us. Don't be afraid. Tell the good news. See? These early Christians in Acts 8 certainly understood that. The sixth notable event from this passage is this, that Philip preached in Samaria. So Stephen was the first martyr, and Philip was the first official missionary of the church. Who was Philip? We've seen his name already here in Acts. Remember, in Acts 6, we saw that Philip was one of the seven men chosen to serve tables to the Hellenistic Jewish widows, as was Stephen. Note that he wasn't an apostle, but rather he was a servant called to serve so that the apostles could do their, do their specific ministry without encumbrance. Later on in Acts 21, Philip is called Philip the Evangelist. Love that. And here in Acts 8, Philip is going to be used by God to preach the good news in Samaria. Now, Samaria, try to listen carefully. This is, hopefully this isn't too confusing. But 
Samaria was a capital of the ten northern tribes called Israel during the period of the divided kingdom. Anybody remember that? Old Testament. Israel was a united kingdom for a while, but in 926 BC it divided like this. With ten tribes in the north called Israel and the other two in the south called Judah. The city of Samaria was located on 20 acres of land, some 40 miles north of Jerusalem in Israel. Samaria has a pretty wretched history. For Samaria was where Ahab, the king of the northern tribes, married Jezebel, who introduced God's people to Baal worship and who built a temple to Baal in Samaria. That's how Samaria is remembered throughout the Old Testament. In 710 B.C., Israel to the north was taken into captivity by the Assyrians who left a remnant of Jews behind to work the land of Israel as farmers. The Assyrians then brought in people from Babylon and other places to replace the Israelites who had been taken captive. These outsiders then intermarried with the Jewish remnant there, but Israel always regarded the offspring of these marriages as half-breeds, calling them Samaritans. In 540 B.C., Judah, the two tribes to the south, returned from their own captivity under Babylon, and they began to rebuild the temple under Ezra and then the wall under Nehemiah. The Samaritans, who were already in the land, offered to help this work, but this offer by the half-breed Samaritans was refused. That resulted in tremendous hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it still exists today. The Samaritans then decided to build their own temple, and they also developed their own kind of theology. And by the time of Jesus, great hostility still existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was so bad that the Jews would go to any lengths to avoid contact with Samaritans, even to the extent of adding miles to their journey when they wanted to go to Galilee to the north because they wouldn't want to pass through Samaria. Did you catch that? I mean, think about this. Um, Lots of racism going on here, right? Uh, I'm in Jerusalem to the south. Um, I need to go up to Galilee to the north, maybe up to Nazareth, up to the north. But the most direct way is to go through, you know, a straight line which goes through Samaria. But instead of going through Samaria, I hate them so much that I'm going to go way out of my way on foot, adding hours and even days to my trip so that I don't have to go through Samaria. We have a slide of what it would have been like at this time here in uh, Acts 8. You can see Judea or Judah to the south, along with Jerusalem down south. Samaria is right there in the middle, and Galilee is up to the north. And so Philip went out of Jerusalem and on up to the despised Samaritans up there. Note that our passage says that he went down to Samaria because Jerusalem was so high in elevation that Samaria was indeed down even though it's up on the map. Now think of that. Samaria. Despised Samaria. Despised by many, but they're not despised by God. Right? And and they're not to be despised by God's people. 
I mean, look, Jesus rebuked his disciples for their hostility to the Samaritans, healed a Samaritan leper, honored a Samaritan for his neighborliness, praised a Samaritan for his gratitude, and asked for a drink of a Samaritan woman, and he preached to the Samaritans. He's also, uh, he also challenged his disciples to witness to Samaria, which Philip is now doing himself. So Philip goes there, and he visits a city and a region, really, that's filled with people who were influenced by Baal worship by Roman false gods, by sorcery. Uh, We're going to see that next week. And by some followers of Christ due to Christ's ministry to the Samaritan woman at the well, John 4, who went out and spread the good news so that many Samaritans from that city believed in Jesus because of her testimony. So there's some who were saved in Samaria. But even so, this isn't going to be an easy task. But Philip's call, note this, Philip's call wasn't to convert people. God does the converting. Little trick question. God does the converting. Philip's job was to be faithful and to preach the good news. And that's what he did. He preached Christ to them. Result, look, they heeded his word. I love that. It doesn't always happen like that. I love it when it does happen like that. And so we see the power of the word of God here. Why do we preach and share the gospel with people? Because sometimes it bears... Uh, it bears life-changing results. Sometimes it doesn't, but praise the Lord, sometimes it does, and who knows when we're going to see that. Well, God knows, but our calling is to be faithful. Our calling is to get the word out, and then we leave the results up to the Lord because God alone brings those results. But the word heeded means to pay attention to, to listen to, to give a favorable response to what Philip was saying. And look, there was unity in this. I mean, the whole multitude was heeding his word. Hey, you never know. You never know. You never know when revival is going to come to a multitude. You never know. Just be faithful and get out the good news. What a great time for the people of Samaria. All because a faithful man went there and he preached Christ to those around him. Oh yeah, and because of persecution, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. Note also that Philip performed miracles. Look, the people heard and saw the miracles which he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, as we've already seen in Acts, we believe that the sign gifts, namely miracles and tongues, interpretation of tongues and prophecy, were a temporary gift to the early church. As the apostles laid down the foundation of the church and as the word of God was being completed. And then once that foundation was solid and laid down, once the word of God was completed and once the apostles died off, so did those sign gifts that were associated with the apostles also die off because they're no longer necessary now. And so we believe that the gift of performing miracles normatively and regularly was limited to this transitional period for the purpose of confirming the testimony of these men of God. And look, except for the 12 apostles, only Stephen, Philip, and Barnabas in the early church are reported to have performed miracles like this. Now, note that this doesn't limit what God can do in any way, right? I mean, God can still do whatever God wants to do, and God can still do it whenever God wants to do it. God still does do miracles today through the prayers of His people, but it's not the same way. Clearly, it's not. It's not with the same giftedness as we see going on here in Acts. But Philip preached and he confirmed his message by undeniable miracles and displays of God's power, specifically here over unclean spirits. 
Now, we don't need that confirmation today since we have the fully sufficient written word of God, but Philip certainly did need that authentication. So by the Spirit of God, he was performing amazing miracles like Jesus did, like Peter has already done in Acts, and like Stephen did in chapter 6. Note that unclean spirits are demons, fallen angels who oppose God and his people. According to Revelation 12, Isaiah 14, and Ezekiel 28, Satan was a chief angel who pridefully rebelled against the Lord, and a third of the angels rebelled with him. So demons are angels who have rebelled against God and have sinned, and now that sin has consumed them. That sin has overtaken them. These demons follow Satan as their leader, and they do battle with holy angels in an attempt to thwart God's plan and to hinder God's people. Demons are spirit beings, and they have the ability to take possession of a physical body. Note that demonic possession can't happen to a true Christian since we have the Spirit of God already living in us, but they can take possession of others without the Spirit of God. How does someone become possessed by a demon? I don't know. I don't know, but uh, it can certainly come through idolatry, the occult, uh, an invitation. Uh, Some have also said that it can come through drugs that alter your mental condition. New age practices or perhaps by just not taking heed to your spiritual life and ignoring Christ. Not wise. Philip had a unique gifting, so should we really today look to try to cast out demons? Well, note that it doesn't say that Philip cast any demons out. It doesn't say that. He simply preached the truth and what happened? He preached the truth and the demons came out. And I believe our call is simple. Give people Jesus. That's always our call. Spread the good news. In Acts 19, seven sons of a guy named Sceva were casting out demons. Uh, we're going to get to that someday. It's going to be fun. So they, they then said, they, they said to one demon-possessed guy, we exercise you by the Jesus Paul preaches. The demon who was real responded, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The demon then leaped on the men, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they left the house naked and wounded. Lesson, unless you're Jesus, or unless you're Paul, or unless you're a very close associate of the apostles with a unique gifting and a unique power in that time as the foundation of the church is being laid down, don't go up against demons. No, just give Christ to people. You don't want to end up like seven sons of Sceva. Hey, demons are real. And they're alive and well in the United States and in Vacaville. But Satan's wise and he makes sure that he adapts his demonic activity to the culture. And I believe that that's why we don't see demonic activity at the forefront in America like we uh, read about in the early church or like we see in other uh, countries. But they're there. They're still here. They're, They're real and they're working. Satan's just very smart in how he works. What's our call? Give Jesus to the lost people around us. That's how people are saved. You focus on that. What else? Great joy filled the city. Verse 8. There was great, great joy in the city. I think so. I mean, come on, I think so. Why? Because Jesus brings joy. The word joy or rejoicing speaks of a feeling of great pleasure, of inner gladness and of delight. It's a deep feeling of happiness and, and true contentment. Biblically, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's something that only Christians can truly have because it comes from God to His children, and it's independent of what happens. 
See, joy remains no matter what happens to us in life because our joy is in the Lord. And so joy is a depth of assurance and confidence that ignites a cheerful heart. And it's a cheerful heart that leads to cheerful behavior. In the present case of Samaria, Luke doesn't give a number as to how many people were saved in that place. But there must have been many who had been saved from hell, who had been saved from wrath for that city to be filled with such great rejoicing. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. I'm forgiven of all my sin. Yesterday I was a child of wrath heading for hell. Today I'm a child of God heading for heaven. I have meaning. I have purpose. I have peace and true joy in my life. I have Him. Joy. That's right. And it, it should be the continual reality for every true child of God. For true Christianity radiates joy. It radiates the joy of the Lord. Because if we have Him, we have everything. Well, may that be the case with us here, right? For how could we not rejoice in light of Christ and what He's done for us? He saved you from hell forever. And He gave you glory forever. So then, may the joy of the Lord fill this place when we gather here. No, No gloominess, even though life is hard, right? May the joy of the Lord be clearly seen in this city like it did in Samaria because what Jesus did for them, He's also done for us. Great joy filled the city, the joy of the Lord. May great joy fill this place as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be a people filled with joy. Help us, Lord, to have a passion for the lost around us, to to go, to spread the good news. And even though we, we remain here like the apostles did in Jerusalem, we still have a message to give out. Help us to spread that news with joy, the joy of the Lord on our lips and in our hearts and in our lives flowing through us. Even though life is hard, incredibly hard sometimes, we can have joy because we have you. And to have you is to have everything. Oh Lord, give us perspective. Help us to remember these eternal truths. We love you. We ask you to bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.